Hi, I'm Ian Sweeney and this is the Bepo Podcast, where we explore people's journeys to professional and personal fulfillment. You can find out more about us at our website at beppo.co, or even better than that, you can give us feedback on the podcast at our Twitter account, which is at Beppo, B-E-P-O underscore C-O. Well, folks, let me start with an apology of sorts. First of all, I know it's been a long time since uh, the last podcast. Um, like many of you, uh, it's been a busy time and I fit this around, you know, life and home and work and all the rest. But that said, um, this is a podcast I've been really excited to do. It's with a good friend of mine, Brendan Thomas. Um, and as you'll find, Brendan has a really, really interesting history and trajectory. He's from my hometown of Dublin, although we met over here. And uh, I guess the best way to describe it is an insider's view of Silicon Valley. But even that is uh, is simplifying it. So strap in. I hope you enjoyed the ride. And as always, and uh, love to hear your feedback. Thanks for taking the time to chat. No problem. Uh, I am really excited about it. We have known each other for about 10, 10 11 years, years something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, well, just for context, you and I met kind of in a different life in a sense, right? We were both in, in Silicon Valley. We both are physically in Silicon Valley, yeah. but we were both kind of doing the, the Silicon Valley thing. So that's how we know each other. But before we launch into, into the details, tell us just a little little bit about where you're from and a little bit of how you ended up in in California. Sure. Um, I'm from Tala, which is a suburb of Dublin on the southwest side. Not a nice suburb of Dublin, but not horrible. Um, Grew up pretty Irish, raising, nothing too exciting. Uh, Went to college in Dublin um, and became an accountant. And, And really became an accountant without really thinking about it. Okay. It was almost like a conveyor belt. Good at accounting in school, went to study accounting in college. When you finish college, you go into a firm, went into a firm, and before I really stuck my head out of the sand, I was 25. Okay. Um, and at that time, Ireland wasn't, it was pre-Celtic Tiger. It wasn't booming like it has in the past. It was a tough graft. And, you know, our greatest export as a country at that time was our people. So what what um, what era was this? So this would have been when I came out of college. It was eighty seven. I was in Deloitte and Touche until ninety three, and then I went into a software company, which was Irish and English and a little international presence, um, enough to whet the appetite, but not so much that you got a real sense of the world from its commerce. Um, and then at the time, and still, my uh, girlfriend, Stroud fiance. Uh, was a pretty determined person, was also an accountant, and she had a greater vision. She'd gone to work in Dubai, and she wanted to see the world. I think if I hadn't met her, I'd probably be sitting in a semi-D in Stillorgan. Okay. You know, and for those who don't know, Stillorgan is like five miles from Tallis, so not that far away. <laughs> Still able to go home for Sunday yeah. dinner yeah. and drag the brats with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so she wanted to see the world, and we, um, she encouraged us to apply for um, American visas in a lottery, uh, a Morrison lottery, and um, we were fortunate. We got our visas, and in 1995, she had been in Dubai for two years at this point. We got married, and 
we came over to America individually. I came over in August of 95. She followed three months later. And, and again, you kind of arrive on these shores and you're not thinking career. You're thinking settlement. You're thinking, you know, find your feet. So you just kind of grab the first job that comes along. And the first job that came along was I was wholly unsuited for. Um, you kind of find out your personality and what works for you and what type of business person you are. I think a little later, and then when you look back at some of the choices you made, you're like, mm-hmm. really? Really? You th-? So I ended up working at Levi's, and at the time I remember... Doing, doing what? I was an accountant in the fund department. So it was actually the most exciting time in the history of the company to be in the sort of fund stroke cash management because that was a time when Levi's had three or 400 owners, and they tried to consolidate it back into a three-ownership group. Mm-hmm. So they actually had a four billion stock buyback, which was incredibly exciting. But for an apartment that sort of bumbled along most of the time, uh, incredibly stressful for them. And I was looking at them like, really? And, and it didn't suit me. It didn't suit my Maverick style. It didn't suit my mouth. It didn't suit my culture. It didn't suit my pace. Um, I wanted to get back into software, but you've come here and nothing is stable in your life. You're renting for the first time, your your culture is completely different, even your food is different, your friends are different. Yeah. You've no credit history, no which is No credit history. I remember we went for a cell phone and we had to put a $1,000 deposit down just to get a cell phone. I actually still have a Citibank credit card after being here for 25 years because they were the very first company that gave me credit. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I actually recently, someone rang me up and said, will you move to whatever? And I said, no. Citibank gave me credit. I'm staying with them. It's only a credit card. But it's kind of those things, like you said, those small little things before. It takes five or six years before you have confidence and can actually start thinking about other things. Um, and, and I moved through, I, I guess, the thing, the first thing that kind of changes changed us in America, and you might remember this. I can't remember what year you came here. was 98, 97, 98, 99. The internet was starting. San Francisco was beginning to percolate. It was beginning to come the hub. And by 2000, it was the center of the internet in the world. And I don't think people remember how big that was because the internet didn't really exist until 97, 98. And in in San Francisco, there was these little startups popping up and all they were doing was taking something that existed today and webifying it. So I went to work for a company called Digital Think the best group of people I've ever worked for in my life, the greatest pooling of talent I've mm-hmm. ever been with. But all we did was took training courses and put them online. No revolution, just something simple like that. But so mind-blowingly different. Mm-hmm. And then that's all people were doing. They were saying, oh, that thing over there? Let's put it online. Boom, company. And it sort of brought me into that whole Silicon Valley world of excitement um, of we're, we're being different of you know 100 hour weeks that weren't audits yeah you were like I'm putting in 100 hours because I'm changing the world I'm putting training online <laughs> that's how I'm yeah. changing the world how are you changing the world today yeah. it was really exciting and, and Antoinette was doing it I was doing it did you were um, so you were in Levi's you said I'm out and you ended up a digital thing I ended up taking a transition step into a software company in the East Bay for eight months mm-hmm. and that company had just been bought so it was a stupid it was a stupid move one that was born out of inexperience mm-hmm. like 
now, if someone said, I'm going to go join this company that just got bought, mm. you'd say, hmm, that's not, not sure. probably a wise yeah. career choice. At the time, it was like, I want to escape Levi's. There's a software company. They're looking for someone. Let's go. And that's what I did. And then after eight months, that folded for me. And that made you sort of, it was the first moment in my entire life where I had, a, I had like time to step back and go, what do I want? Mm-hmm. Wow, this exciting thing is ha- happening over here. That would be kind of interesting. And again, like most things that have happened in my life, Antoinette was the person who kind of inspired it because she was like, look at all this exciting stuff happening over here. Maybe we should dip our toe into there while yeah. we can. And I did. And it was, I have not since, I joined Digital Think on the 7th of February, 1998. And I have not earned a penny in my life that I cannot trace back to that day. Really? Since. Every wow. penny I have ever earned since the 7th of February, 1998, I can trace back to that group of people. Wow. Wow. So be it directly at Digital Think or working for one of them in my subsequent business or to a friendship or pulled in on a stock, everything can be uh, associated back to that group of people. Wow. So you hit Digital Think. How long were you there for? I was there for exactly seven years to the day. And it it went through, it was a, a really exciting time. It was a great time to be in San Francisco, but it was also a time where you suffered, you, know, you experienced the highs and you suffered the lows. We mm-hmm. went through the 2000 bubble. We, we took the company public in February 2000. Really? And literally the next week, the bubble burst on. And it was such an interesting time because at the time, I don't think people remember, Amazon was a book company. Mm-hmm. And Amazon, the CFO at Amazon, I, I think she's dead at this point. I think she died in a horrific accident down on after a bike accident. Mm. But she had this phrase where profits for suckers. And what she really meant was growth at all costs. And this was something that the investment community supported, the people in the, um, the startup arena supported. It was constantly, we've got to grow, we've got to grow. I remember celebrating, I think maybe our million dollar sale, ringing the bell and being pulled aside by the CEO and told that that was nothing to celebrate, that we needed to celebrate the next sale. But, um, and then suddenly Amazon said, they went public and they said, no, profit's important. And literally within a month or two, the entire ecosystem collapsed the investors got skittish the ideas dropped dried Mm -hmm. up the opportunities disappeared people start uh, being a little skittish about buying from a startup whereas before i buy from a startup that's cutting edge yeah yeah so those sort of things and we had some really tough times 2000 2001 and I remember, you know, we were getting back on our feet and we were feeling good about ourselves. And we bought a company on the 9th of September, 2001. That was a, a, an education company in Minneapolis focused on the airline and transport industry. And then two days later after we closed, 9-11 happened. And oh God. we were back, you know, in tough times. And I ultimately, we were ultimately purchased. We, we were bought in 2004, or 2003, and I left in 2004. And um, again, I think it was probably the second time that I got a chance to take a deep breath and make an assessment. And at the time, 
Um, we had just had our second child. Ian mm-hmm. was born in July 2003. Our first Sinead was born in January 2001. And just after Ian was born, Antoinette, my wife, started this company, Finance Focus, where she just wanted something to do. She wanted to get out. So there were some fledgling startups beginning, needed accounting support. And she started giving them accounting support, like one day a week, then two days a week, Mm -hmm. and it grew gradually. And then when Digital Think ended, I suggested, hey, let me take a time, let me spend some time with the kids. Um, You go build what you need to build. And she took that opportunity. I hadn't spent any focused time with the kids. And at the time, I think Ian was like maybe six months, seven months, and uh, uh, I became like, I guess I became a dad in the real sense. Yeah. And it sucked. It <laughs> I wasn't expecting that answer. Absolutely sucked. It's not that I hated every moment out of you. Anytime you spend with your child, if you look at it the right way, is a good time, even when it's not. Yeah. And now, especially since my eldest has just gone to college, I look back on all those times and wished maybe I had appreciated them more. But I remember um, in 2004, we were driving up to Tahoe to have a vacation the summer of 2004, I'd been minding the kids for maybe six months. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they were asleep in the back of the car. And we were talking about, you know, how's the business going? And, you know, how's it going with you? How are you enjoying this? Because, you know, there's so much happening. And you know this from yeah. your young kids. There's so much happening that you kind of disconnect. And as we drove up, we reconnected. And somewhere north of Sacramento if I had been able I probably could say that I got on my knees but I basically begged Antoinette to let me join the company <laughs> I was so desperate to get away from I won't say fatherhood but the day to day mundane greyness yeah. and we decided okay you know I, I, I went back part time for another two years I did part time and built my own little business around her business mm-hmm. And then when the kids went to school, I went full-time. We had a nanny, and I went full-time working as uh, providing accounting services to venture-backed startups in Silicon Valley. Great. Um, it was incredibly exciting. It was the build-up, that four-year build-up to 2008 was, again, a time where people had you know, freedom, Freedom reign of thought. We had investment going into real ideas. People learned the lesson from 2000 where it wasn't like I arrived in San Francisco with a, you know, which business plan do you want as they held open their code yeah. and showed you four. Yeah. There were real ideas and they were changing ideas. It wasn't I'm taking a business and putting it online. There was thought behind it. There was progress behind it. There was still, and, and I think a lot of it was been driven by the phone. So yeah. there was still some of it wasn't real. There was still a lot of app culture. You know, how can I get someone to touch their phone one more yeah. time? But there was also real, real companies there, and it was an exciting time. And, and where were you? Just thinking back to the the shift um, from digital to think, and then the kids arrive, and um, I mean, you were—I don't know what age you were, maybe you were um, around sort of end so of digital thing. So that would have been two thousand and four. So I was thirty-seven. Okay, so you're you're sort of ten years ish in the U.S. Yeah, ten years in the U.S. Okay, so you're twelve years in the U.S. at that time. Yeah, and so was it without worry or concern that you sort of when digital think wrapped up that that you said I will take a bit of time off and 
Like, was it, it sounds, it sounds like it was easy enough. Uh, yeah. One of the things that myself and Antoinette have always been good. We've been, we've been good. Financially, we're good at two things. First thing we're good at is not overextending. Mm-hmm. I mean, we will spend money on the right things and we've always been careful not to extend beyond our credit and always have savings. That's just something we've been good at. And um, the other thing that we have been fortunate with, I won't say good at, but we've been fortunate with is that we have not been afraid to make a bet. Mm-hmm. So we have constantly, everywhere we've been, we've laid a bet. And we've had the attitude that it's a bet. Yeah. And you make it with money you don't need to live. Or you've decided, if I have 12 months cash and I make a bet, that brings it back to eight months cash. And we're okay with that. Yeah. yeah. So you make it with money you don't need today. And you know what it does to your future. And then if you lose it, you lose it. But if you win, then it gives you some cushion. And the bets that we had made was um, I had stayed with Digital Think longer than everybody else, but forced them to pay me to stay. Right. So I'd stayed for a pretty gruesome and ugly year, but got paid well for it and right. didn't spend it. So, so I had that little bit of, um, you know, that little bit of cushion, yeah. cash cushion. Yeah. Okay, we're back. Um, okay, so we had a little pause there because Mittens uh, wanted to be part of the podcast. But um, so you were just telling us that you, you you prepared yourselves, I suppose, to be able to place bets. Yeah. Um, and that's, and I, I thank you for doing that because... One of the bets I placed was on you. Yeah. In fact, you were, I think you were the first, you were either the first or the second investors in uh in that company so that's how our pads cross and a good example of placing a bet and not getting a return on it well so. no I'm not getting a return yet I think one of the things <laughs> that true. people make a mistake is and it's actually I had this interesting conversation with a, a good friend recently where um, people bet money they can't afford to bet or that yeah. they need too soon yeah you really have to bet with money you don't need yeah now or in the in the immediate yeah. future so there are some investments you make and it's a short term or medium term and some it's the long term gain and some of it is you'll get a knock on the door and it'll be here you go here's the money remember that bet you made 10 years ago and your bet is still alive and kicking and at some point it's going to come true and you're counting on it and I know it's going to happen and you know and that'll be nice that'll be a nice day because I'll feel good about making the bet and you'll feel good that the people who believed in you got some reward now you might feel bad that it was 10 or 12 years later but the reality is there are many many companies that are rewarding people 15 20 25 years later yeah and that's okay so let's talk about something that that is beginning more to bother me over time so you've painted kind of a rosy story of of sort of entrepreneurship in silicon valley and and certainly we all know stories about crazy venture capitalists and all that type of stuff um but you're, and we'll, we'll get to understand this a little bit later, you're a bit more removed now from that. So with a bit of, a bit of perspective um, on that, that sort of stage of life for you and that whole dynamic, and we live in Silicon Valley, and so it's, it's anywhere, it's everywhere. Um, ultimately, is it, a, like, is it a positive thing in your mind, the whole, the whole, let's just call it Silicon Valley for the want of a better... I think like everything that has positives and negatives, it's done some pretty amazing things. And maybe we don't just call it Silicon Valley. Maybe we call it 
that sort of we, we acknowledge wherever it is in the world yeah. that group of people who, who drive forward yeah um, but I can remember the moments where I suddenly realized that there was a negativity to it yeah and where that negativity started to creep into my mind more and more and I started to notice those behaviors and it started to turn me against the life down there. Now, I've always said I didn't want to live down in Silicon Valley that it mm-hmm. had no spirit. It was just one of those places. And I remember, um, I can't remember what year it was, but I had started to listen to NPR in the car. Yeah. Um, I had been tired of listening to the sports station. I, I got into the car once outside the door, turned on the radio, and an ad started, and it was Mill Valley before the, the stuff came back on, the actual talk radio. So I, I turned over to NPR, and I listened to it for a year before it depressed me. Uh, and I just had to stop listening to that too. But there was a, I can't remember exactly the show, but I remember someone who was saying, they were talking about all the brain power in Silicon Valley, how much intelligence there is down there. Mm. And they were bemoaning the fact that they were spending their lives and their intelligence and their capacity on making me look at my phone one more time per minute, mm-hmm. one more click, one more penny. And that if that brain power had been pivoted towards something positive, more positive in their opinion, and in a way it kind of is with the Teslas and some of the environmental thing that's being done, yeah. but they were bemoaning the fact. And, and I remember thinking, wow, that's true. Like I'm going down to visit four really intelligent people and they're solving nothing. On, on the other hand, so I agree. And then on the other hand, to counterbalance it, I mean, you worked you work in Twitter, yeah. right? Which revolutionized communication. And at the time, it didn't feel like it. It felt like, I remember people used to say to me, what does Twitter do? And I said, Twitter lets me tell you I'm wearing red shoes today. <laughs> and I think it only became like Twitter was five, six, seven years old before it really revolutionized communication. I think the aha moment for them um, was when uh, Sully landed the plane in the Hudson Bay. Yeah. And that one person sent out that tweet saying, I am on a ferry on the way out to save passengers. And that suddenly people realized, oh, this isn't about red shoes. It's about in the moment and letting people know. And I remember... Um, when I started with Twitter, which was June or July 2007, um, we were fledgling. Very first premises that they were in, I think there was 10 or 12 of us. And I remember I would send emails, there'd be a little piece on us in CNN or something, and I would yeah. send them to Jack Dorsey and say, check this out, did you see this, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe two or three weeks after I started to doing that, he, he reprimanded me, he just called me and said, listen, stop doing this. And I thought it was because I was flooding his inbox. Yeah. And I said, why? It's exciting. And he said, don't you believe in us? Wow. And I said, I didn't say anything. I kind of said, I understand. And what I did understand, what I didn't understand was that from the get-go, he believed. He saw what it was. He just, I don't think he could articulate it at that time. And even right. if he could, I don't think people would have believed him. And I think it took the customers or the users to really show the power of that too. Yeah. And you know, it's exciting. It, and, and I was extremely, when I look back on my career, um, I, I think of all the great people I've met 
and the people who have let me be in this situation, it's a it's a woman who who just a bookkeeper from Fairfax who had the greatest influence, who has had the greatest impact in terms of allowing me to do what I am today. And it's one of those stories where you think about it and you go, no, that couldn't happen. It was a lady called Linda Seabright. And she worked for me. She was a bookkeeper. And I had her in a couple of different companies. And she never had two pennies to rub together. She was in her mid-50s to late-50s. Um, every time the, the model we had was people who worked for us got paid on a monthly basis just like we did by our clients and she would call every day to the door looking for a check and the kids would laugh the doorbell would ring and you know the kids would be like Linda needs money oh god and um, I put her into to Twitter and she after about two weeks she came to me and said uh, I don't know what this is but we need to be on board and I said, what do you mean? And she said, we need to work for stock here. And I thought to myself, you know, she hasn't got two pennies to rub together and she wants to work for stock. So I said, okay, I'll go. I went to talk to Jack. We put a deal together for both of us. She was able to do it for about eight months and then just the financial hardship couldn't, she couldn't do it any longer. So actually I paid her and took her stock um, and uh, ultimately, she she moved on like everybody else moved on, like I moved on, like she moved on. Anyone else that worked on the team moved on, and she she ultimately got cancer. But Twitter saved her life because she could she had a huge big buffer now from her Twitter stock wow. that allowed her to take the time off, get better, and move to a better place. I think she moved um, to another country with her daughter. Wow. So, but she when I say she had the biggest influence. It was because she turned around and said, we need to do this. I didn't need to do Twitter at the time and they weren't offering. Yeah. I, I mean, when I say we didn't need to do Twitter, I didn't need to get, I didn't intend investing in Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, it was her influence. And when I went to Jack, he was all on board. And, and, and that was fortunate because then that floated to Square and we did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So Linda Seabright, uh, a bookkeeper from Fairfax was probably the most fortunate person I met uh, since I came to America. Wow. Probably influential in terms of me being able to spend time with my kids, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So, um, so let's fill in the picture a little bit for the, for those who don't know. So, I mean, you had, you had a whole portfolio of amazing companies. And when you think about it, just think about the entry point, I mean, um, you know, coming in from a finance and accounting perspective into this crazy, creative, manic yeah. kind of a world. Um, so you end up there, Antoinette and yourself build up. So your model was, as I recall, you know, you get paid for, for, for the work. And when you got to a point, which actually mimics what you described earlier, you got to a point where, okay, the bills are being paid. We have enough. Any extra income that, that is coming in, well, let's see if we can build up a, a portfolio of, of stock. That was really what it was. It was, um, we had our, what we called our cash cows. And they were the companies that, you know, paid the bills, paid, our, our, paid for our employees. And then, and, and we had three or four of those. And then, you had a whole host of other companies that had the potential to be exciting and provide a return. And we would go to those people and say, I want to bet on you. Or, or silly little things like, for example, 
um, Antonette worked with a company that were trying to pass their annual budget and they were 100,000 off and they were in a board meeting and everybody was, you know, shouting and, you know, yeah. fighting across the table and reluctant to give up even 20,000 in their budget. And she read that situation and said, um, I'll, work for, I'll work for stock for this year. And at the time we had a team in there, which meant that we would pay our team. Right. She would take the stock. Um, and I think the budget line item might've been 120,000. So we took that out. And um, two years later, the company was sold and she came out with a seven-figure check. So we made those. You're sitting in the seven-figure check right now. <laughs> We're in Brendan's house having this conversation. So, so yeah. those sort of things where you, you take a risk, you make a bet, and it's always on people. Yeah. You know, oh, I, interesting. I, I don't understand ideas. And I'll give you a really good example of that. Um, and not to derail too much to getting into talking about Silicon Valley, but... Um, in April 2008, I got an email from a guy called Joyty Bansall. And Joyty, um, he, was, he was working for VMware at the time. And he sent me a, an email saying, you know, who he was and that he had a company and he was trying to get investors interested and could I help him. And I remember it was like late at night, 10 o'clock at night. And I sent him an email back saying, listen, I don't do that because my experience was that don't invest too early or don't take on that raising cash too early because mm-hmm. that's a difficult thing to do and you have no experience or, or um, you know, really inclination of whether you're going to be successful or not. Yeah. So you could put a lot of effort into something and it comes out to be zero. And, and irrespective, you know, you don't like someone enough for that to happen. Yeah. So um, I said to him, I don't do that, blah, blah, blah. He came back crying practically. If you could get a cry email, it was a cry email. You can see the tears rolling down the screen. And I said, oh, crap. <laughs> so I sent him back an email saying, tell me what your company's about. I'll see what I can do. I'll invest a little time in this. And um, he did. I read it and I didn't understand it. I was like, I do not understand this. But I sent it to two, three investors that I, I had relationships with. And within 30 seconds, they'd all replied saying, I'd like to talk to him. So it made me wonder. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we got funded in seven days. That was April 2008. And then um, three years ago, on the eve of his company going uh, public, he sold it to Cisco for $3.4 billion. So you just don't know. Yeah. So you have to kind of trust people. And, and, the, and the irony is, Brendan, I don't know if you remember these details, but you invested in my business almost at the same time as you invested in Joyties. And I won't go into the, all the history of my business, but as you recall, it's kind of in the accounting space. I knew which was in there. Yeah, which was an area. And so when you look back, it really illustrates your point. Joyty went off to create $3 billion of value, and I didn't quite get to those heights. You were, yeah, I mean, you were, you were a percentage of that. <laughs> but the thing that's Greater also interesting zero, but, yeah. about that is that, you know, here we are um, 11 years later, I haven't spoken to Joyty for four years. Yeah. Yeah, we meet every three months and have tacos yeah. and talk. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, I mean, in the end of the day, which was a richer experience. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like you get down to that point where um, 
you know, it's friendships and people. Yeah. It really does come down to that. And that was, you know, I talked earlier about there were sort of two points where I, I was kind of, it confused me about Silicon Valley. The first was the time where I listened to NPR and the people talking about the brain power being pointed in the wrong direction. The second time, and before we started this podcast, you talked to me about, have you ever had a situation where you've had an experience, an aha moment that wasn't an aha moment, but was over a period of time? Yeah. And my aha moment that was over a period of time was with an investor. Um, an investor, I won't name him, but he's at Vantage Point, and he was incredibly wealthy. And probably the greediest person I've ever experienced in my mm-hmm. life now, being in Silicon Valley as a finance person on kind of on an investing side and on the uh, investee side at a time when people were being ruthless. Yeah. You saw a lot of different things and a lot of behaviors that turned your stomach. And he was incredibly wealthy and incredibly greedy and did things that were just pure power plays that were unnecessary and also hurtful to the companies that he had invested in. Um, And it turned my stomach. Mm. And it started to make me realize where I was and who I was dealing with. And some of the things that people had to put up with because they loved their idea or they had bought into their idea so much, they'd gone to bed with people to get their idea off the ground and now they were in bed with the devil. Mm. And they didn't have the control that they wanted or needed or they were made do things that in an ordinary situation they would not have or were sort of touching against their moral compass. And there were several instances of that. And it, I suddenly became aware of all of them and I didn't like it. I began to wonder about Silicon Valley. And I remember in um, April of 2011, my wife, who was uh, working in parallel to me in, in her business, she decided uh, she had enough. Her basis was that... Um, the kids were growing up and she wasn't spending any time with them. She had spent one summer, she had, she left in late May and didn't come back till late August. And, you know, they saw her twice in that period. And she, she wishes she had that back. Um, but there was a huge sacrifice and you were sacrificing for who? We got to a point where we didn't need anymore. And I remember talking to Antoinette, looking at these behaviors and saying, I need 18 months off. I need to take 18 months off. You, you said. Yeah, I need to recalibrate. And I had started to talk to my clients about taking 18 months off. The plan was in March uh, 2013 to take eight, to, to kill the business and take 18 months off. Not go anywhere, not do anything specific, just do nothing. But just be. Be and just really sort of figure out what makes sense. And I think some of that was kind of around the time you're sort of, you're in your mid-40s which is kind of the time where you're supposed to be sort of grabbing your career and, you know, trusting it forward. And I didn't want to spend another 10 or 15 years amongst those people. It wasn't that it wasn't exciting. And, you know, a lot of the people that I met and knew, like I was sitting at a table with Jack Dorsey for a period of time, and that was exciting. I was sitting at a table with Will Hurst, you know, for many years, and that was exciting. You know, I remember, you know, being in board meetings on a coffee table which had a glass covering and the very first 
San Francisco Chronicle that you know Will Hurst had drawn out to pitch to his friends at a dinner table and you're like this is history and this yeah. is exciting but at the same time you sat at other dinner tables and you sat at other investor meetings and the people had lost themselves to Silicon Valley and when I really thought back on it there was something that I was really uneasy with and I still am today is that um, I made the most money and had the biggest business growth because of 2008. And, and 2008, 2008 being the, the second dot-bomb, yeah. Once we had the Great Recession, my business took off because people couldn't afford full-time CFOs. They needed part-time CFOs. They needed part-time accounting help. Yeah. And once we were in, we were in. We were hard to get out. So we were a good service and we were reliable and we did a lot of good things for people, but we also did very well out of it. And in, in, in essence, when you think about it, 2008, a lot of people lost everything. And we didn't. We were kind of like the bootleggers in the prohibition. Best thing that ever happened. And that didn't sit well. That was, that was kind of tough to deal with. And all of those things, like when you come from Ireland, you don't grow up in America, you don't grow up in this culture. When we grew up, we, you're, what age are you now? 45. So you're seven years younger than me. So we kind of grew up in the same time. The 70s and the 80s in Ireland were tough times. Yeah, things didn't Very, pick up until we left. Yeah, and, and you know when our parents look back on it, I don't ever remember my parents having disposable income. I don't ever remember my parents yeah. you know, being able to do extravagant things for us. And then suddenly, and, and that sort of forms your character and, you know, your belief system, what you trust, what you're prepared to do. And then suddenly you're thrust into a, a situation where, you know, I remember one day bringing a client out to show them properties that we were looking at. We were driving around Silicon Valley. There was a real estate guy, a really, really good guy, Steve Lico, love him, and myself and this client. And... As we drove by, we were going from one place to another, and we drove by Google. And Steve, out of point of interest, pointed over and said, there's the helicopter parking lot at Google. And we looked over, and there was maybe 25 helicopters in the parking lot. And I remember thinking, that's disgusting. And I looked back at my client, kind of expecting a sort of a, a look and like all I could see was the dollar signs sort of clicking in his eyes and this huge big smile. And it's just like, you know, that to me was the heart of Silicon Valley. Probably still is. And I didn't want that. Before. Yeah, that's the bit like Silicon Valley for you and I has been phenomenal. Like it, I think it, it fits our characters, our, our desire to kind of do new things and, and be energized by all of that stuff. And it still is that. Yeah. But the underbelly of it is, we talk to anybody who spent more than a handful of years in Silicon Valley working, and there's just some some nasty stuff. So there's sort of the yin yang to I mean, it all. One of the things that we have experienced, not not everybody who's in Silicon Valley experiences, is we've been in the boardroom. Yeah, and that is a rough place to be. It's ruthless, and. At times, you're disgusted by it. And at the same time, it's kind of, it, it's almost like that horrible car crash that you drive slowly by because it's a horrible thing to see 
but you also want to make sure you take in every detail because there's an adrenaline to it. Yeah. And you're in those board meetings and, you know, there's carcasses being left on the table and you're, you know, you're disgusted and enthralled at the same time. Yeah. You know? The car crash is a good, a good, you know, a good so, analogy. And you're right. And, and the thing also about both of us is that if we had never left Ireland, we would, we would have had this unfulfilled component to our careers I for sure probably would have been working in, you know, as the CFO of some software company, growing 10% a year, you know, driving home, you know, to Daisy with her two girls and, you know, great, but yep. just doesn't suit not the a personality. Yeah. Would have been unhappy and maybe not understood why. Yeah. So that part of your life came to an end. Yeah, it came to an end on the 27th of September 2012 at about 7 a.m. in the morning. Tell us more. So at the time I was working for a company that, I mean, I was working for many companies and that was one of my, my challenges. And um, one of the things that uh, people hired me for was I was extremely calm. Always the calmest person in the room. Um, always able to hold the emotion in check and get to the, the kernel of the issue and drive things forward when sometimes it didn't seem like there was a path forward. Uh, and which was a good quality for a CFO to have, but there was no outlet for that calmness. I wasn't coming home and shouting. I wasn't coming home. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't coming home and you know taking it out on a punch bag. I just was who I was, the calmest guy in the room. And then um, I was driving, I was working for a company, it had been around for 10 years, had gone through different iterations, we believed in it, and um, we were being looked at by Jive Software. Uh, we'd had a preliminary meeting, and on the 27th of September 2012, we had a meeting in the afternoon, two o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the first kind of acquisition meeting. And I got up early, that morning and walked the dog and said, you know, I wasn't fully prepared for the meeting, so I decided to drive down at 7 a.m., beat the traffic, spend some time going through my presentation, working for some other clients, etc., etc. And as I drove, I just felt shit. Felt really, really bad, lethargic. And um, in the end, actually, as I drove through San Francisco, I turned back and said, I'm, I'm tired, I'm gonna go back to bed. Um, and I felt worse and worse, and, in the, I, and to an extent that I actually had to get off the freeway and drive surface streets back to my house and I remember I teased Antoinette about this because I came home and I walked into our bedroom and she was ready to get the kids out the door and I sat on the end of the bed and she walked in and said is everything okay why are you back and I said I think I'm having a heart attack and she said okay I'll get you a disprin an aspirin take that I'll drop the kids to school and then I'll bring you to the hospital <laughs> And that seemed like, to both of us, that seemed like the most logical thing in the world. You feel like you're having a heart attack, let me drop the kids off to school. I heard on Ellen, I heard, she basically said, I heard on Ellen, Rosie O'Donnell felt the same way and she took an aspirin and felt better. That's exactly what she said. So in the end, what it turned out to be was AFib, which is where your heart races mm -hmm. um, 300 beats a minute. And... Uh, that night I was defibbed back into regulation, which is where they put the, the plates in your heart and, and shock you. Um, 
And I came out and I thought, I'm in my mid-40s and I have two young children and I'm okay financially and I was planning to take some time off. And the biggest risk for AFib, people with AFib, is that you get a stroke. And my fear, still is my fear, my fear is that you end up dragging your right foot behind you or not being able to use your right arm. And I remember distinctly, you know, like Antoinette ringing up the CEO of the company and saying, Brandon's in hospital. And he's saying, when's he going to be, can we move the meeting to tomorrow? (laughs) And um, I was in hospital that when I came back and they reached out to me and I had had that sort of moment where I realized I need a drastic change for me. Yeah. And they rang me and said, can you come in for the meeting? And I said, no. And they said, why not? And I said, because I do not want to be dragging my right foot behind me just because you needed a fucking meeting. Now, if someone said that to you, you kind of have to say, okay. okay. You can't say, really? You're being selfish. Yeah. So in the end, the deal didn't go through and it didn't go through quickly, which was the best result for both of us in terms of me and them because they were not trying to go through an acquisition without a key component and I was not feeling like I needed to contribute and pushing myself at a time when I didn't need to push myself. So we shut down business straight away. All of my clients were excellent and said, we understand. I took all of my people and placed them there. I uh, had a relationship with a guy in Larkspur who was doing what I did, moved all my clients over to him and we had a very smooth transition given what was happening and within two weeks, I was out completely. Like by mid-October, I was done. So from so from the from end of September hospital to to done was two a weeks. matter of weeks. Two weeks. Every client gone. Every client comfortable with their situation. Um, you know, a lot of reaching back and saying, you know, questions and still relying on me. But when you tell people that you're putting your health first and anything they can say, they want to say to you is not going to have any impact, they have to listen. And it's actually been interesting. Subsequent to that, there have been two or three people that were CEOs of those companies and have made the same decision as I have. And one of them, a close friend, I don't know, do you know Kevin Kern? Is Kevin? I think I've met him, yeah. You've met Kevin. Yeah. Well, Kevin made the same decision for the same reason. Um, and we meet frequently, as frequently as we meet, and um, we talk about what's going on in the world. And we both have had that situation where we've had cardiac issues and have made a different decision based on that. Mm-hmm. So what, what really influenced me to take a complete step back was, first of all, I was getting there with the sort of the greed and the, just the futility of a lot of the work down in Silicon Valley. And then that was advanced at a pace by health issues. So by the time then in December uh, 2012, I had another AFib attack, got charged back into position. And 15 minutes later, I had a third one. And uh, ultimately, I was put on meds. And, and kind of that was a moment where you're like, wow, I'm 45 and I'm on three types of meds to keep my heart going. And you realize, you know, some of those decisions I made in the past may not have been the brightest things to do. And like just for context, you were not amazingly unhealthy. You're, no. People can't see you. You're not, you're, as long as I've known you, you've never been overweight. You're... A lean guy, 
and certainly your lifestyle now is uh, is even more healthy. But I don't think you were a big drinker or anything like that. It was no, it I was... wasn't a big drinker. I didn't didn't smoke. Um, you know, ate okay. Yep. Now, when I if I look back, I would say I didn't eat well because I know a lot more now. And we have talked a lot yep. about diet, and I'm kind of on the far end of where people would like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I didn't. What I did do that was was damaging was that um, I was in pressure situations all the time, mm-hmm. be it either with the client in a pressure situation to get a product out or to raise money or to sell your company. And a lot of people in those situations, they go through a pretty extensive period of pressure and then they have a break because maybe their company got sold or maybe yeah. they raised the money. Whereas I was going from pressure situation at nine o'clock board meeting on Monday to pressure situation at two o'clock board meeting on Monday to pressure situation at a Vestor board meeting at eight o'clock on Tuesday. So I was under constant pressure to where it didn't feel like pressure because it felt like the norm. Right. And one organ in my body was like, yeah, no, this isn't the norm. Yeah. We're not, we didn't sign up for this. We we didn't sign up for this. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, you also, I mean, it's an easy thing to say. I mean, you you often hear when politicians leave or when people leave um, offices, they're like, I want to spend more time with my family. And it sounds like such a trite thing to say, but, you know, you realize that you aren't spending time with your family. And then the time that you do spend with your but people think, oh, you know, I left to spend more time with your family. Like, what did you do? Well, I, dr- I drove them to school every day. And it was brilliant. Yeah. You know, like the time that you act, the thing that you leave to do is the absolute opposite of the spectrum to the thing that you did every day. And, you know, this is kind of like just an aside. Um, it's a story that makes me smile. Um, when I was in Silicon Valley, I had a board meeting one Friday. Antoinette had a board meeting an hour earlier, so I said I dropped the kids to school. And we had a minivan, which was a proper minivan. And the kids were in the minivan. I dropped them to school. I raced down to Silicon Valley, skidded into the, the car park, and realized that all the way down, I was singing Hannah Montana at the top of my <laughs> voice because that's what Sinead had been listening to on the radio, and I hadn't turned it off. <laughs> so man going to investor meeting in suit, singing Hannah Montana in minivan. Yeah. And that was kind of my life. I was trying to balance both those things and they didn't really mix. So it was great to be able to just, and it was hard for the family because you had to kind of reacclimate and re-enter. Yeah. You know, I remember reading about John Madden, the, the great football coach, when he, um, he was the coach of the Oakland Raiders. And I can't remember the period of time he was the coach of the Oakland Raiders because I'm a Niners fan, but... Um, when he finally left the Raiders, he lives in Pleasanton or Livermore on the border of the two. And um, I remember uh, him coming home like, basically, I'm here. And he said the biggest adjustment he had was that everybody went and had a life. That didn't include him because he wasn't there to be included. So his wife bought a pub and she ran a pub mm-hmm. and his kids were off doing this. And he said he spent like three or four months sitting at his own at home before he became a commentator. <laughs> and then everybody was happier because they were feeling guilty that they they were doing their thing now and he wasn't yeah. included didn't matter when he had something to do so then I sort of was at home and we were all here and sometimes you just look at each other and go what now 
Yeah. Because you're at, the kids are at a time where, you, you know, they're doing stuff and you're trying to include them and being, you know, we're trying to create a family again, like a family life. And it was hard. It was like, it was starting from the beginning because the family life we had didn't work. And then, and there were too many people at the table. <laughs> so it was kind of funny in that regard. So how many years ago is that now? 2012. So that was seven years ago. Seven years ago. Okay. So from, from my vantage point and, and we probably talk, you know, we have good, good conversations almost every 90 days. Yeah. So checking in fairly regularly over those years, there was, there was a period, like from my perspective, you dedicated, dedicated yourself wholeheartedly to the family. Cause it was in the, in the early years, we probably would have had conversations around, well, so what are you going to do? Yeah. And, and you would have entertained those conversations. You're like, well, I don't know, nothing too crazy. And then, then it got to a point relatively quickly, quickly where you're like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm doing, I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, people used to say to me, I have a friend who lives in Tiburon, uh, Lance, and um, he used to get annoyed at me because he would say, spend some money. <laughs> Why aren't you spending your money? And I would say to him, I am spending my money. And he would say, what are you spending your money on? I said, I went to Good Earth today and bought groceries. That's what I'm spending my money on. I'm not working, but I'm still living. Yeah. I'm investing in living and doing nothing but just being there for my kids. So one of the things that I'm proud of is that I've been to every single play, been to every single baseball game, every basketball game, practices, pick up and drop off, um, soccer, everything I've, I've been to all of them I've been there to listen to you know how he didn't make that play at third base or did I see that hit or I missed that song or you know I yeah. have brought my daughter to school every day for four years and loved every moment of it tell us about that was an intentional tell me the tell us the carpool story oh yeah so um my daughter, uh, we live in Kenfield, which is about maybe 25 minutes north of San Francisco. Um, it takes 25 minutes to drive from Kenfield, where we live, to the Presidio, which is a park in the uh, northwest corner, or northeast corner, I guess, of San Francisco, where my daughter goes to school. My son also goes to school there now. And um, she never learned how to drive, and I wanted to drive her every day. And they initially, there was a carpool, and... Um, I said I wanted a driver and then subsequently other people came and said hey you know we want to have a carpool you know we drive in from the same location you know it'll be great you only have to do two days a week blah 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 and for me that wasn't the right solution I wanted to spend that time with Sinead that was some of the best days we ever had we had so much fun and it was interesting because our commute on the way home would get quite thick with traffic but it was never a problem because we would talk, we would listen to music, even in our silences, we were together. Mm. And it was some of the best time we had. And when she just went to college, which has been you know, a very emotional thing, um, and she gave me one thing before she went, and that was she created a, a playlist of all the songs we listened to over four years on Spotify. So, you know, yeah. those are the sort of memories that we have and those memories wouldn't have existed. I was not on the phone. I was not on a call. I was not going, shh, daddy's listening to uh, whatever. 
I was there and that was what I was spending my money on. And she never learned how to drive. My son joined the commute two years in and that changed things, that changed the dynamic. But what's kind of interesting now, and, and you know, I was explaining to Sinead just before she headed out of college, I was saying to her, you know that daddy's retiring at the end of September. And she was like, explain, as you say, explain. And I was explaining to her that, you know, for the last seven years, I've invested my time in her and Ian. And now that she's going to college, I don't have as much of an input there and a time commit. And my son Ian just got his driver's license, so he's driving himself to school when he wants. He still isn't doing five days a week, but he's doing it when he wants and when he feels comfortable. And now I definitely have those blocks of time where you Mm -hmm. go, what are you going to do? And I've seen that coming for the last two years. So your question about what are you going to do suddenly becomes the question of the day. What are you going to do? And literally the day because Sinead is is a couple of days gone, two days. She went on Tuesday and, um, you know, when you rang up and said, hey, let's meet for, let's meet for lunch and do a podcast. I was like, absolutely. Friday's (laughs) done. (laughs) I know what I'm doing on Friday. (laughs) So, I mean, it was kind of, it's, it's been interesting figuring out what I'm going to do. And one of the things we've talked about this and maybe we haven't talked about it for a year or two, but one of the things I did a year or two ago when I realized that this was coming down the line was I put together a list. I heard about this person who put together a list of 60 things they wanted to do by 60. And I changed it to 70 things I want to do by the time I was 65. But really just goals to try and, you know, keep your mind focused. And one of the, something that myself and Antoinette do is we encourage each other. We've suddenly sort of said, you know, this time is coming and we've got to go do these things for each other. We're not getting any younger, blah, blah, blah. And she just came back from, she spent a week up in, they went to, she and Sinead went to Japan in uh, June, something they always wanted to do. And then she spent a week at a raw food course in um, Fort Bragg uh, at the end of August. So it's one thing to say, I'm going to go do all these things. It's another thing to, to have permission to do them. Yeah. It's another thing to actually go do them and then you know, come back and affect the changes that you know, come from that. So we understand that we're in a very fortunate place. We understand that we were able to put some time into our kids and others haven't. Um, and we also now understand that we have an opportunity to do some things that we want to do. Yeah. Now, there's there's one thing that's started to pop up maybe two years ago would be my rough guess, which is kind of an, a, cre- a creative outlet for you. Yeah. Talk to a, me a little bit about like how what it is and how that came about, like how it kind of bubbled up for you. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not what you would call a creative person. I'm you know, I'm I'm an accountant. Um, I'm not musical. I'm not artistic. My brother is an artist. Um, I'm not artistic. Uh, but like all Irish people, Irish people have a, have a creativity within them. And sometimes it's just willing itself to escape. Um, and I'm a reader and, and I read a lot. I was always reading. And my wife said to me, um, maybe you should write a book or maybe you should write. And that seemed like a preposterous thing to do because there is so much talent out there. Um, it's so competitive and it's quite cutthroat and, and it's really raw. You're putting your words out there. You're creating something. It's the first time I realized 
what it's like to create something, put it out there and get feedback and try not to get upset. So what I, what I did was I said, I'm going to write a page. And if that page is okay, then maybe I'll write a second one. And I wrote a page. It was, it was the prelim to a story about a bully. And um, I don't know. I think you may have actually read I have, that. yeah. yeah. It might be the only one you read. Um, and it's actually changed a lot since, since you read it, but blah, blah, blah. I wrote a page and I thought, you know, that's okay. I'm not embarrassed by that. And then I wrote another one and then I start getting into it. And, and I wrote a small collection of short stories and put them in a book and held the book and said, uh, I made that. Like it would look like a book that you would yeah. buy in a store. You open it and it had a contents page and had on the front by Brendan Thomas. And that was such an exciting rush. And at the time, I realized you're writing for yourself. You, as long as you're happy with it, that has to be enough. But there's something about writing and possibly all creativity where you crave feedback. You need that feedback. And when someone gives you positive feedback or says something that you created alone, you as an individual, not copying not in someone else's style, something that you did, and they say, I liked that. That is an amazing feeling. It's very hard to describe how exciting that was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember when I wrote that story and I asked you to read it. It was early on, it was early enough. I might have been writing for about three or four months and I'd only written four or five um, stories. And at that time, that particular story ended abruptly, intentionally. And... I remember wondering how people would react to that. And you came back and said, what happened? <laughs> and that was like, yeah. um, I was so excited by that feedback that you weren't like, oh, I, I knew. I knew yeah. that, you know, he died or he didn't yeah. die. You yeah. were like, what happened? And I was like, yeah. okay, you know, that's actually, I felt really, really good. So I've, yeah. uh, I continued to write. And, and some people, you know, they write continuously and... Um, they're just, you know, you have an unbelievable body of work. I wrote steadily, but not consistently. And when I had a good idea, um, I put it down on paper and I wrote short stories because I'm, I'm still, I won't say use the word a coward, but I don't feel confident enough to write a book, like a story or a novel, as people call them, because, you know, if you write a short story and it's, rubbish that's five to ten thousand words that you committed to a page and it's bad so you can tear that up and go didn't work out if you start to write a novel and you're 120 pages in and someone says that's not good that's a lot of pages to be thrown away it, that's a lot of courage to throw that away and start again it is it sounds a little bit like the accountant's guide to writing a book like it's not bad but but no, it's definitely uh, it was calculated yeah. And but what's interesting is now that I've been writing for two and a half years and I've been beginning to put my toe in the water of how do I get this out into a broader public, I realize that ultimately I will need to be brave and write a novel. And it's kind of interesting to sidetrack. Um, you know, when I look at the world of writing, which it doesn't consume me now, but it interests me greatly. 
and it excites me when I sit down and create something and read it. Um, I think there are two types of people. There are storytellers and there are writers. Storytellers tell a great story. And you get so excited by the story or so interested or gripped by the story that you don't always notice the writing. And sometimes the writing may not be great. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people who can write. And sometimes the story is weak, but the words carry the, the day. And then there are other people, and people will probably scoff at this, but there are people like uh, J.K. Rowling who are both, but you don't realize they're both. Because you read her books and you go, you get so captured in the story that you finish the book at a pace and you go, wow, that was great. But if you actually go back and read it, the words are excellent. They're wonderfully constructed. They're terse. They're, I mean, you just, you realize that is a writer and a storyteller. And that was something that I, I'm trying to get to a point where I can be a storyteller and ultimately a writer. And that's why halfway through this whole, you know, writing short stories, I took what people might consider to be a step backwards rather than forwards in terms of progression, which was I started getting into flash fiction. And flash fiction is where you write a very short piece. It actually started with Hemingway. Hmm. So Hemingway was challenged to write a story in six words. And the story he wrote was, and I may have this wrong in the wrong order, but it was for sale, children's shoes never used. (laughs) and from that grew various communities 10 words 100 words Carrot Ranch is 99 words and ultimately I've settled on 300 words and what that did was it made you realize that you can tell a story with a beginning middle and an end with a very small amount of words but each word is sacred Mm. and then when I looked back at what I had written in terms of short stories I realized that I hadn't treated each word as sacred. So I've spent a year going back over those stories and editing the content without changing the story. story. Or the, yeah. So it's, it's, been a really, it's, it's been a journey that has been exciting for me and maybe not for others. And you know, sometimes you hear, um, you know, you see athletes or someone do something and you're amazed and everybody jumps up and it's fantastic and they don't see some of the hard work that went into that performance and not that I am an athlete or I reach those dizzy heights but I know that ultimately now when I put a product out there there's been a lot of iterations and there's been a journey to those words and it's been exciting it it, it is exciting in many ways uh, and it's been interesting getting feedback from different types of people mm-hmm. like my brother in Prague who lives in Prague he's an artist and he's like he's Kafkaesque um, he's incredibly intelligent he's married to a woman who uh, is Mensa and you know the guy you know I'll send him something and, and he'll send me feedback and those little kernels are so interesting you know he sees it in such a different way like, oh my that's amazing. I never thought of it that way. Or sometimes you just slap something on a page and someone reads and go, oh, this. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, you're right, that. <laughs> That's the first time you thought of it. So in anything creative, even like that, you look at that picture behind you, 
some people just see orange some people see a woman's form some people see an actually beautiful woman but if you stand back you actually see that she's quite ugly yeah and it's what people see in a thing and i think words are the same it's what people see do they see the emotion do they see the journey do they enjoy the words yeah and that's been exciting for me because that wasn't something that you got from silicon valley now i know i didn't own any of those companies so they weren't my babies but i had my own baby in Silicon Valley and you know I was quite proud of that but not to the extent that I am for so bridge go back bridge that I was going to ask you literally that question like the, there's been fulfillment for you in in both of those and what is the is there a carryover is there a similarity is there something between the crazy sort of Silicon Valley cutthroat but world and this really Really creative, but actually kind of businessy as well. Yeah. Like you talk about it as a product, but yeah. But I think the first thing is that um, you can quantify success in Silicon Valley. I don't know that you can quantify success in terms of writing. Um, the you know Silicon Valley, you created something, um, and it was exciting, but you know, and people were happy with your product, but it's, it's a greater rush. But the one thing that they, when you write, I, I think the one thing that they have in common, or at least that I'm ex- beginning to experience, is I just put my toe into the, the waters of hoping to get published in the next two or three years, properly published, not Brendan published. Yeah. Um, is, uh, it is a, it's a competitive arena. And like everything else, you have to be good. You have to be telling a story that people want to hear. It has to be moving. It has to be the right person at the right time. They have to be in a good mood that day. And, you know, I go to, I just started going to a writer's group and the purpose of this writer's group is to polish a manuscript so that you get to a point where if you, you know, if they like it, they help you get to the published world. And as we sit around the table, there's only 10 of us uh, in that group. But, you know, there's such a range of things from, you know, adult fiction to ABC books. There's... Um, you know, people in their 70s, and there's people in their 30s, there's people with young kids, there's people whose kids have gone to college and are putting grandchildren on their knees, and everybody has the same goal. They, they're being creative, they're, being, you know, they're excited about why they individually are writing, they're watching all those people around them and seeing what they're doing. They know in a sense that they're competing with those people for minds, mm-hmm. for you know, agent share, and it's kind of like Silicon Valley in that way. I mean, there are so many founders down there who have great ideas. There are so many people who think that they have the next big thing, and um, it's so competitive. There's a limited amount of capital, um, a limited amount of time. So, in a way, both of them are incredibly competitive arenas. I didn't realize how competitive. The one thing I did realize to my great embarrassment recently, and we talked about this when we were having lunch earlier, is that um, you know, being able to pitch an investor and sell a company is not the same thing as being able to pitch a piece of writing or a piece of art. It is mm-hmm. a completely different skill set, and I wandered into a meeting, think both were the same, and embarrassed myself incredibly. I got shown the door. It was the shortest meeting I ever had in my career. <laughs> um, yeah, that resonates with me around pitching. But the thing about the thing, I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you on that. 
the fact that you recognize that it's a, it, they're both pitches. They're both about, and this was maybe a thread that I think probably that follows through. It's around communication. It's around words. It's around storytelling. It's around narrative. And there's probably a couple of things going on here. First of all, the older I get, the more I realize words matter, specific words. I, I haven't written any books. I'm not going to write any books soon. But specific words are really, really important, whether that's in like your relationships or going back to pitches. Like finding the right word when you're pitching a new product or a new business or a new thing and that like it just eyebrows raised just a little bit and, and heads turn and you're like, oh, that, okay. Yeah. That gets it. So I've been kind of mulling over like wh- what is this, what is the commonality for you and maybe for, for me as well. But obviously there's an element of being Irish to it as well. Right, storytelling and 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 again and words, and so there is something there's something deep in in Irish people around that, and then so all of that plus then the other thing that you mentioned at the start, which I disagree with you about, where you said you're not creative, right, and and I I know you were kind of you're kind of building your story around around why we're here, yeah, but it's really interesting to me that. The creative stuff, maybe it's just as we get older, it begins to bubble up. It's showing up some way, somehow. And I personally, I'm so surprised that it's showing up in me, but it is. And it just wants to get out. Yeah, and I don't know if that is being Irish or I don't know if that's being 40 and 50. Yeah. Um, and realizing that there is more to life than what's in your bank account or... You know, or not on your bank account. Yeah, or right? what your status is yeah. in terms of what you drive, what, what all those yeah. things. I mean, again, to go back to the point that the thing that has surprised me the most is the sense of satisfaction from creating something that I never had when I was in Silicon Valley. I remember um, we talked earlier about that, that guy, Jody Bansal, who sold his company for $3.4 billion. I remember... Um, we were sitting in this living room myself and my wife and she said didn't App Dynamics go public last night or yesterday and I said oh yeah let's go check that and we brought it up online and it was like oh no they didn't go public they got sold for twice the public valuation by Cisco and it wasn't like yes whoa look at us we started that company blah 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 it was like oh do you want a coffee <laughs> you know it was like whereas I've been submitting flash fiction to a website um, for the last three or four months and I got an email back recently to say that you know they'd noticed progression in my writing that I was very close to being published on their website and that was so uplifting much much more exciting than hearing that you know this company had been sold for this exorbitant amount of money and that we had done okay out of it now Ten years ago, would I have felt that way? Probably not. There's one other thing that um, that words have that um, I've learned, and that's the power of understanding. Uh, let me give you an example because it's easier sometimes to explain by example. Um, my mother suffers from dementia, and it's progressing, and and it's sad. It is. It, it's very sad. And over the last, um, like when we went back to Ireland recently, my daughter met her and she has met her several times and they've had a good relationship over the years and my kids pictures are dotted around our walls and um, 
my mother didn't know who she was. And uh, as we were leaving that first day that we met her, she said, um, you know, uh, you seem like a very nice person. To your daughter. Yeah. To Sinead. She said, you seem like a very nice person. It was lovely to meet you. And Sinead was devastated by that. Um, And that was, and I remember writing a story about that. But the power of understanding, the first few times when my mum got dementia, when she, you know, the first three or four times that I'd been back in Ireland visiting, my father wasn't the kindest to her. And, you know, there was no point in getting angry with him about it. And I remember uh, just sitting there thinking about it. And then I wrote a story called She's Gone. And it's like 7,000 words. And it was about a couple where the mother slipped into dementia and it was based on both of them and you know uh, her being robbed of her life and her identity and him being robbed of their future together and the anger and frustration that built up inside him and ultimately you know I, I, I say this that you know you know dementia is going to kill both of them and once I had written that I had a much better understanding of my father's situation because it forced me to think about it and then to try and articulate it and to go places where I don't have to go because it's not my experience so to project and I may not be right but at least it gave me an understanding those words gave me an understanding of their situation and it doesn't mean that I'm happy that my dad has gone through this and is still angry and, and at times doesn't treat her well, but it definitely makes me understand what has been taken from both of them. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about the power of words and the power of understanding, you say that words are important. They're unbelievably important. And, um, you know, recently I, you know, when I went to that meeting, uh, I was told very quickly, I'm not going to read your shit. And this is the one where you yeah, pitched. Yeah. Five minute pitch. Go go join do some competitions and go join this group. So I did some competitions and I went and joined the group and um I'd written this story about people dying of cancer together. I'm a bit morbid at times. And um I'm not sure if you ever read that one, but I, I managed to section out a piece of it and call it the average life expectancy of the US citizen and it was about a a man and a, and a girl, an, an old man who was dying and beside him, an 18-year-old girl, they were in a terminal cancer ward. And they had a conversation. It was just about their conversation back and forward. And it actually got uh, shortlisted at a, a book festival, which was really, really the first time that it wasn't a friend who said you could write. But the, the best thing about it was that, um, you know, we had to, when I joined this this group, we had to submit a piece of writing. And you submit writing, people read it and give you feedback. And um, when we joined as a group and it was this four-hour session and we were getting our feedback and when it was my turn, I was getting some positive feedback about this piece and this woman, um, it was her turn to talk about it and she started to cry. Wow. And she was crying because it reminded her of her own situation with her father and the words kind of provoked her. And that, to me, was, and it sounds wrong, but it was more satisfying and gratifying than any pat on the back or check I got because we sold X or we raised Y or 
whatever, because, uh, you know, something you did touched someone. Yeah. So um, one of the prior podcasts was with a a friend of mine, Phil Lauren, screenwriter, and he almost said exactly the same same thing as you sort of verbatim. Like, it's about moving people. Yeah, it's... it's, I got an email recently, I have a... And you forget, you know, like, you crave feedback so much when you don't have an audience when you don't have 10,000 people to read your blog or read your book and give feedback or publishers etc you know you you when someone says oh you know you tell what are you doing I'm writing oh you know I'd love to read something people say I'd love to read something and that's kind of like do you want another coffee they're saying do you want another coffee and you're hearing yes read it <laughs> please read my book please give me feedback yeah. and you know like you send it off and you they, you get home and you send yeah. the email you know before you even take your coat off yeah yeah and they get it and go shit I have to read this thing now <laughs> uh, and, and you and then you don't get any feedback and you forget like even my own family are like we're not reading any more stuff we're done it's too much you need to find other people to read and give you feedback yeah. so blah 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 I sent something, I, I was dropping Sinead off to a, a very close friend and her mother was like, what are you up to, blah, blah, blah. Oh, send me some stuff, I'd love to read it. I said, oh, of course, and sent her something and didn't hear them. Three months later, I was like, I got this email and it was so heartfelt. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, just like your friend who said, yeah. you know, like you could clearly tell from the words that she had been moved by it, you know? Yeah. And that was as good an email as anything I got that week you know because yeah. it, it lifts you because like your friend said now he's in the enviable position where not only is he moving people and his stuff is amazing because you've told me what he's written yeah. um, and I would be so proud to have done something like that but he's moving he's not only moving one person he's moving of, of an age group Yeah. he's moving children and parents and he's bringing children and parents together at the same time. Like he's yeah. So for those of you who haven't listened to it, it's Phil, Phil Lauren and his wife wrote the script for Cars, and the, the Pixar that, movie. And our, we have watched that so many times together, and we have talked about it, and we've gone on long drives, and it's yeah. played to keep the kids excited. And that is, you know, that that's a gift. To a parent, and it kind of loops back to that whole thing where I said that you know, you just want to spend more time with your family. And what did you do? Well, I drove in the car with my kids, and I enjoyed every minute of her. I went to the practices, or you know what? I didn't put on the movie so they'd leave me alone so I could answer my emails. Yeah. I put on the movie so I could sit with them and watch cars, and that opening scene where they race around. Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, that's amazing. So, it's, it's that sort of feedback and it's that sort of thing that's exciting and I, and I would imagine you know if you do something brilliant in Silicon Valley that changes the world in a positive way that you get that same satisfaction and it's not just the satisfaction of waking up and there's a billion dollars in your bank account it's a different satisfaction it's a different yeah. it's a satisfaction that you created something that was good for mankind and the thing that's that I'm kind of not struggling with but thinking about of late is you know as I 
as I want my writing career to progress. And you know, it is what it is. If, if it gets published, that would be amazing. If it turns out to be something that just gave me a creative outlet and I loved everything I did, then that would be good too. Um, but I also kind of, not grapple with, but in the same way that that sort of interview on NPR that, that sort of for the first time pointed at Silicon Valley and said they're not using their talents. Yeah. There's something in the back of my mind that has started to sort of gnaw at me and it's like it's a kind of a why me thought it's like why was I allowed to do well enough in Silicon Valley that I don't have to work was it so I could satisfy myself Mm -hmm. am I raising children who will go on and change the world I honestly don't know what but what is the reason like at 52 what is the reason that I don't have to work? Like, is it going to be Brendan Thomas stopped to work at 45 and enjoyed his life? Is that going to be it? Is, is, is that going to be, and if it is, is that enough? You know, people talk about a second act and I'm not even talking about a second act. I'm just w- beginning to wonder why me? For what end? For what purpose? Yeah. And I haven't found that purpose or understood that purpose or maybe I have and don't know it yet so what was fascinating to me was a couple of years ago there was um, a particular transaction about to happen for you and it was going to change things and and we were having a conversation about the potential scale of it and you know it could have been a sort of a a life-changing number or hey that'll pay you know that'll cover the bills for a while and and it really and this is a couple of years ago when you said it to me um, I remember you you saying exactly what you just said to me. You were you were like, if it's a big number, the question is why and what what kind of what's the responsibility that 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 brings for Brendan? And I just I thought like you were still in the we were both super deep in getting businesses going and yeah. all that type of stuff. And it just because the whole like the whole Silicon Valley thing is like, wow, what are you going to do? You're buying a jet, right? Yeah. That that type of thing. And you didn't even joke about that. You didn't even say, well, I'm getting a nice car. And then I'm, you there was nothing about acquiring anything or changing what you were doing. You were like, well, what's, what, what does that mean from a responsibility perspective? What is yeah. it that I... What, why, what, what do I need to be doing now? Well, one of the things that's kind of been interesting about that was, um, you know... You, you, a world gets open to you that you don't expect and that you've never known. It's almost like a parallel world where, you know, I remember many years ago, to, um, 1999, before Digital Think went public, um, we were still one of those companies. We were going to go public and people knew it. And we were going to, we were still like sort of had our office depot doors on two filing cabinets yeah. and my desk was right beside the CEO's desk. And I remember... Um, the CEO every you know every now and then he would come home or come into work in the morning open an email and laugh and he'd say oh I just made 50 grand today I'm like how did that happen he said oh red envelope just went public and the broker who wants me to you know put my, put my digital think money with him when I get it just threw me 50 grand threw me some shares and sold them first thing and put 50 grand into my account and, and I remember um, like what that exists and we went, like, we were invited to play golf at Bodega Bay and the broker paid for him and the COO's golfie and wouldn't pay for mine, this sort of shit. <laughs> and, and, and I remember thinking, what? That is just so greedy. And then when we got to a situation where, you know, we needed help, um, we, we met these two, this, we started working with this company and two really great guys. And they 
kind of help you find that balance and get to a point where you're like, what's important? And when we said what's important is that we spend time with our kids and what's even more important is that, you know, if our children turn around and say, I want to do this because this makes me happy and it's not a Silicon Valley-esque type job, then there's enough there to support them do that. Yeah. And if their children turn around and say, I want to do this and it doesn't support a basic lifestyle, then that needs to be catered to too. Yeah. Because it's becoming really evident to me that what is super important is that you do something that you love. And I'll tail back into that in a second. So, you know, whereas myself and Antoinette are very fortunate, you also want to do something that helps. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's helping generations to come to do what they really want to do. And maybe it's just that fact that they get, like Sinead has gone off to do fashion. And she's gone to fashion school in Italy. And, you know, that's an industry that, you know, it can... It, you know, it may be a difficult place for her to, to be, but she loves fashion. She loves art. She loves creativity. You know, I would hate to see her in a situation where she's doing something she doesn't love just so she can do something that she does love. And maybe that's what it is. It's yeah. allowing people in the future to do what they want to do. And wouldn't you hate the world not to have Sinead's for it all to be oh, whatever? Absolutely. The know? world needs creative people because it has enough of the other type of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, before I forget, it, um, I watched on Netflix recently, I started watching the Bill Gates documentary. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't seen but it. But it's obviously a really, it's really relevant in this conversation of him obviously being, I don't know if he's still the wealthiest guy in the world or not. Number two, I think, after Bezos. But, but, but okay, now what? Yeah. And, and how he has, has really attacked, if you want to call it act two, attacked act to like willfully and intentionally to to make you know to make change and um, much in a, in a much more intentional way than i actually realized so it's really it's it's a and i think you know, one of the that he you know if you have anything in common with bill gates it's a great thing but i think one of the things that i'm fortunate to have in common with him is that i've got you know someone by my side who's driving forward at pace and then a lot of times the only way you can keep up with them is slipstream them yeah yeah. You know, and Antoinette has been sort of driving forward and she is not someone to sort of she's not Gucci mama who's like this is great let's go out and buy purses Yeah, she wants to do you know real things and that kind of leads to you know when you talk about second acts I've been fortunate to be you know to pursue something that's creative which may or may not be successful but is already successful because it's occupying me and I'm very yeah. happy with it um, and it's and Brendan it's moving people it's already it, you know, a small number, but yeah, but, but it is. It's having a. It, it's you picking up energy and giving it to somebody else in the world. Like you gave it to me when I was sitting on the sofa. Re, like I was going, I like Brendan. He's smart. It can't be that bad. And I read. I was like, fuck, this is really good. And you right? know, hopefully better now. Yeah. The the thing that she has done, which I have sort of trailed along, it was like when when I got sick and around the same time. My son was diagnosed as pre-diabetic, and it was it was a sloppiness on our part. It was a kind of, hey, you know, we don't have the time to devote to these kids properly, blah blah blah, and um, and subsequently she's become hugely interested in health, 
nutrition, um, meditation, blue zones, and um, and subsequently we've both become vegan. But not just, you know, it's more like heart healthy vegan. Yeah. Healthy vegan, for want of a better way of saying it. And that has been something that has been incredibly interesting. And there's a thriving community of people who want to change the world from that perspective. Now, I know you've kind of in the last few years, we've kind of encouraged each other. And you've got yeah. to a point where you're the same as me, but occasionally you eat fish. Mm-hmm. And you've just enjoyed a cup of tea with soy milk in it. Um, <laughs> Might have to give up my Irish passport I for know, that two one. guys from Dublin who are yeah. you know, talking about... <laughs> You know, being vegans, etc. But th- it's incredibly interesting. And you know, I went to in April. I went to the Cleveland Clinic to um, meet a guy called Caldwell Esselstyn. He's a doctor who reverses heart disease, um, and he has a protocol. And it's all nutrition based and food yeah. based. It's veganism. It's it's and it's just exciting to see that there are people out there, not just from the climate perspective, from the health perspective. And they're beginning to get airplay, and people are beginning to listen to them. I'm beginning to follow and go through the steps and finding themselves being much healthier. And, you know, when I, when I got sick and I was told, hey, listen, the way we control your heartbeat is meds. I was like, yes, please. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you, you take meds and, you know, you take other meds because those meds have this side effect. And then you take other meds because the meds you took to control the side effects have side effects. And, um, and then you go on these meds that they tell you you're on for life. So um, five years ago, I went on cholesterol medication. And, you know, you again talk about people who you meet in your life who are influential. Um, and it all ties in. So I apologize if I sound like I'm rambling. But I met, went to, I, I had a change of cardiologist, this English guy, nice guy, Arsenal supporter. But, uh-huh. you know, we could get past that. And, um, you know, we were working together, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I come to the conclusion I'm, you know, at this time I'm 50 years of age and I've been on some of these meds for five years and uh, it's impacting me, et cetera, et cetera. I want to get off these meds. And I remember sitting in the consult room and I was preparing my speech. I was like, I don't care. This is my body. You're going to help me. This is the path I've started on. You better get on board, blah, blah, blah. And he walked into the room and he was 80 pounds lighter. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was ripped. And I said, I want to get off my meds. And he said, sure. Okay. What do you want to get off first? And right. I said, cholesterol. He said, okay, you understand this has to be a process. It's easy to put people on medication, but it's hard to get them off it. I said, yeah. And he said, let's go 50% off your cholesterol. What are you going to do about it? I said, well, I'm, I've started being a vegan, uh, good vegan or bad vegan. You know, and we went through it. We talked about it. And um, I came back. And this just recently, I, I came off my cholesterol medicine completely. Came off my daily aspirin completely. So. Wow. He is working closely with me to get off my meds. And that's just as exciting to me as someone starting a company or writing something creative is that kind of trying hard to book a trend and working hard on something, uh, something so important. Like yeah. we talk about it before about health and, and yeah. well-being and worrying about the kids and setting good examples and all those sort of things. And, you know, it's not easy being in this culture where you know our bodies break down because of the pressure we put ourselves under 
we have to fuel them, but we fuel them with the wrong things because we don't have the time to fuel them with the right yeah. things. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, this sort of vicious circle. And it's really hard to step off it. But if you step off it, there's these people who have dedicated their lives to being better, to the better of everyone. Yeah. And they're ready to step in and help you. So, you know, one of the things that's happening over, has happened over the last two years and it's going to continue to happen and, and Antoinette is really to the forefront of it is, again, diet. Yeah. And being the absolute best vegan you can possibly be. And then being influential in that perspective without being pushy. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, if you said to me, obviously when I came to America, it was all about just coming to America for three years. If you said to me, this is where I'd be, I'd be like, I don't think so. If you said, you know, on the 26th of September, 2012, the day before I got AFib for the first time, you know, in seven years time, this is who you are going to be. Not only would I have said I don't believe you, I probably would have said I don't like him. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, but I'm okay right now. And the thing that, that is interesting to me is that I'm on the cusp of another act. And I was saying to you um, earlier, or not necessarily another act, but another stage Season in life. Season yeah. So, you know, I was talking to you when we were having lunch. I was telling you that Sinead left for college on Tuesday. And, you know, she typically Sinead is an incredibly you know, messy and creative person and an incredibly creative person and she fills a room with her sound and her energy yeah. and that has gone from the house and the house is quiet and I kind of, the other day I went into her room just to be among her messiness, just kind of just have some yeah. consolation and she had tidied up before she left and she was gone, like her spirit was no longer in, in the that room, room yeah. because her you know, the essence of who she was and all her creativity and her clothes everywhere just was gone. It was just this neat bed. Like, as I said, I, and I wrote a little bit about it. I said that, you know, even her untidy bed was tidy. And, um, it, and when she was walking out the door to go to college, Ian, our youngest, who was a junior in high school, was very, very distraught. And his... his um, we were, I was consoling him, listen, she'll be back at Christmas, it's only 10 weeks. And he was explaining that she's leaving for good. Yes, she's back in 10 weeks, but then she goes again. And yes, she's back for the summer, but then she goes again. So in essence, her life in this house is now over. She will no longer mm -hmm. live here. She'll visit here. And then at some point in the next two years, he will yeah. go somewhere and become a visitor. And then we will live in a house where we have visitors who are our children. So the yeah. 18 months that we're allowed to borrow them is or or the 18, 18 years, years yeah, that we're yeah. allowed to borrow them is over. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that sort of makes you realize beyond the sort of, you know, the despondency, um, you get it back up on your feet and you realize you've got all this time and you've got to go do something productive yeah. with it that is satisfying. And, you know, what do you go do? So, so let's, Let's look forward a little bit then, because we, as uh, I'm realizing, by the way, we talked a little bit earlier about Rich Roll. Yeah. Uh, this is becoming a Rich Roll podcast, which I is know, great. Okay. This is great. We've had, and we've introduced the veganism, which is great as well. And um, so I'm going to steal a term from him in the sense that we, we need to land this plane a little bit. <laughs> and so there's two things I'd love to do before we go. One is tell us a little bit about um, where we can find some of your writing. We can put the links online, but there's a name of a particular place, I think, that that your writing is available. 
I haven't actually put that up on writing. Oh, yet. you haven't? No, no. I mean, oh, well, we'll have to. I will let you know. Okay. I, I, and one of the things that Sinead gave me a, a microphone to write podcasts or to read podcasts, yeah. I never got off my ass and did yeah. it. So, you know. So, we, we are, we'll do that thing today. So, what we'll do is we'll have you read. Uh, I'll read a small piece of yeah. flash fiction. Yeah, let's do that. So, people can get a sense of uh, what your creativity sounds like. So before we, so we'll, we'll kind of wrap up with that. I just want to say thank you, Brendan. No problem. Um, We've got to beat the traffic across the Richmond Bridge. That, yeah, that's, that's not the real reason we're wrapping it up, though. Cause, uh, but before we do that, I, do, I just want to say thank you for having the faith in me. Uh, I think it was 2008. To write a check to some guy you'd met two or three times and it made a huge difference and you've been a mentor and a friend for all these years and it's been um, entertaining and it's just been great to have somebody who has has faith in me. So thanks for taking the time to do this today and thank you for all the support over the years. No worries. I think by the time that um, that investment comes into roost, we'll have written a similar amount for tacos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we will. Each it's of a us. fairly lofty bill. All right, thanks, Brendan. All right. Okay, so we're live again. Okay. Okay. So uh, you're going to give us a reading. Do you want to uh, give us any context at all, or do you want to just jump straight into it? Uh, sure, a little bit of context. Uh, this is a piece of flash fiction. It's 300 words. Um, the idea of flash fiction is that it's something quick and pithy um, and it is supposed to allude to a time before and a time after but as a self-contained piece it's finished and this one is called The Moment and hopefully it's a moment that we all feel at least once in our lives alright go for it um, I haven't read out aloud one of my Avina. pieces before so this is going to be interesting to hear my voice say the words out loud she leant across him reaching for the alarm clock he had promised to set it for 7 a.m. It was now 7.10 and no noise. She squinted in the early morning light charging through his flimsy curtains, wrinkling her nose to cut off a sneeze. She couldn't reach the clock or read the time from her side. Where are my glasses, she asked, but he didn't know. She moved across him now to gain more length, and he felt her small breasts brush across his chest. She was conscious of their size, but he believed them to be glorious and told her often. Rolling back into the warm spot, clock in hand, she cursed. Shit, John, it's after seven, I'm going to be late. He sat up in bed watching her move furiously around the room, picking up clothes where she had discarded them the night before. She pulled on her pants, slipped into her bra and closed it with the self-assurance and ease that only a woman has. With her long legs and lithe body, she looked like an athlete, but he knew she was clumsy and uncoordinated. Buttoning her blouse, she disappeared into the bathroom. He listened as she relieved herself, double flushing as was her habit. She popped her head out and he said, a new pink one in the second drawer down, before she could ask. Two minutes later, she reappeared brushing her teeth and hair at the same time. Where the fuck are my boots, she muttered, toothpaste on her lip. He spotted them underneath the chair and told her. Retrieving them, she noticed him gazing at her. What, she asked. Nothing, he answered. But it was something. It was the moment he realized he loved her. <laughs>